Okay, let's, we, I need four volunteers to, to just come up here. Um, yesterday, I, I moved into my new house, and uh, in order to make it nice... My new, oh, thank you, thank you. Um, in order to make it nice, I borrowed a friend's bobcat. I just want to say, when I'm big, I want to drive a bobcat. Have you seen how those looks like wheelies? They pull, oh, it was amazing. Anyway, so by one o'clock, everything was going so well until I heard a loud crack. I just sat down, started working on my sermon. I just heard this. I went, oh, no. I came outside to see the bobcat like this. It had sunk into a sinkhole. Anyway, we got it out. And the reason I'm telling you this was to give them time. But more than that is because today, what I'm going to do is I'm going to theologically take you through like flattening a piece of ground. And we're going we're gonna to dump some sinkholes. We're going to cover a lot of ground theologically. So you have to stay with me. Like if you're counting tiles, you're going to miss half the sermon. So you, you stay with me. But Romans, Romans is a beautiful book. It is, um, in fact... You could probably spend a good couple of years just teaching out of the book of Romans. There's just so much depth to it. It's the doctrinal foundation of New Testament believing. And, and chapters 1, 2, and 3 are so full. So Gary spoke last week about chapter 3, and I thought I'm going to add to this because I, I want to get some context into it that sets us up for chapter 4, because 1, 2, and 3 kind of stand alone, 4, 5, 6 kind of, they, they stand alone. And so in chapters 1, 2, and 3, Paul is acting like a prosecutor. And <laughs> look at Jesus. There, there we go. There we go. <laughs> well, God is the judge. And then can you guys just bring those things out into the front? And, and what... There we go. What Paul does is he brings a case to prosecute each of these guys before the judge so that they will know that they need Jesus. That's what happens, chapters 1, 2, and 3. That's, that's kind of what you've got to get into your mind. So he comes to the heathen. Now, the heathen is the guy who says, there is no God, and I don't care. And he comes to that guy, and he says this in Romans 1, 19 and 20. They know the truth about God because he's made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, so they have no excuse for not knowing God. So Paul comes to the heathen, and he says, there are three things that come against you. Number one is your conscience. You, you using an excuse that you, you don't believe in God, well, how come you got a conscience? Who put that in place? And then, then he comes at him with two other big words. You know, Gary was throwing big words around. I just want to show I'm as clever as him. Um, he, they come with a teleological reason. Say teleological. There we go. You're going to feel good about yourself. And an ontological reason. So teleological means a, a design reason. If you see design in something, you know that there is intelligence to make that design. The world is full of design, patterns. We see creativity, it, it's design. If there's design, and he, he mentions the stars in the sky, if there's design, then there's evidence for a God. The ontological reason is, is a reason of existence. So hunger exists because if we don't eat, we're going to die. Fear exists because there's stuff that will hurt us. 
the desire for sex exists so that reproduction will happen. And wherever you go in the world, you will see the desire for worship. That wouldn't exist if man wasn't made to worship something. So Paul comes to him and he deals with him. Bang, bang, bang. Then Paul goes off to the moral man. The guy who goes, oh, I'm not that bad. I'm better than that over there. Like, uh, uh, God, God really should like me because I do some good things. Do some bad things, but mostly good things. I'm a good guy. And Paul just lays into that guy. He says, yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas. This is what we do. We go, I'm actually not that bad. And God should like me. And he says, you make up foolish ideas about who God is or what God was like. And as a result, their minds became dark and confused. And so Paul goes, I'm going to smash the moral man. You need Jesus. You need Jesus. And then he comes off to the religious man. And in chapters 2 and chapters 3, he basically nails the religious man going, if you want to keep the law to be made right with God, you have to keep all of it all of the time. And no man's ever done that. And then he, there's this final caveat where he goes, all have fallen short of the glory of God and all are under God's judgment. You need Jesus. This is chapters one, two, and three. So whoever you are reading the book of Romans, by chapter three, you're going, uh-oh, I need Jesus. Okay, give them a hand. They're so good looking. Wait, can I keep you two? Can you two just stay? Because I'm going to get... Okay, so I'm going to go into chapters four, chapter four. And uh, by the end of today, I want to get one thing across. Don't give up. That's where we're going today. Okay. In chapter four, it says this. By the way, uh, chapter four can be divided into three parts. One to nine, I preached about about three weeks ago. You You can grab that. And that's all about faith being the only way to Jesus. Then from 9 to 13 is about circumcision. So we can talk about circumcision if you want. Uh, So we're going to go into 13. Here's how it goes. Clearly, God's promise to give the whole earth to Abraham and his descendants was based not on his obedience to God's law, but on a right relationship with God that comes by faith. The context of Romans is that Paul's writing to a church that's got Jews in and mostly Romans. And he's trying to get the Romans to understand circumcision. He's trying to get the Romans to understand the law, the Jews to understand the place of the law. And here's what he's doing. He's saying, if you're trying to be made right with God by obeying the law, you're not going to receive the promise. The promise only comes by faith. You do not live right enough to earn the promise. And then he he keeps going. He says, if God's promise is only for those who obey the law, then faith is not necessary and the promise is pointless. So again, he's going, only two ways to receive the promise. One is 100% obedience. You failed. The other is believing in Jesus. And then he says, for the law always brings punishment on those who try to obey it. The only way to avoid breaking the law is to have no law to break. The only way to avoid breaking the law is to have no law to break. I want to talk about how this happens. So, if he is going to be made right with God, 
He either lives 100% right or he's under judgment. Okay. So what Jesus does is he comes and he dies to represent all three. The religious man, the heathen, and the moral man. There we go. Well done. I feel like Tim should be Jesus. But anyway, Jesus comes along and he goes, I will receive the punishment for all three. For all man, for all time. Now, there is a law. People think it came from the Romans. It actually comes from Deuteronomy 25. It's the law of double jeopardy. What the law of double jeopardy says is that a man cannot be punished twice for the same crime. And the reason they have the law of double jeopardy is because imagine you, you find out that a guy's a murderer um, and, then, and you punish him for murder and then you find out he wasn't just a, murder, a murderer, he also broke the speeding ticket whilst he was murdering, so you punish him. The thing is that a person would be punished once and it would be over. It's to protect people so that the government doesn't just keep Smashing people. Okay, it comes, from, it comes from ancient biblical times. This law plays out in our faith. This is how it works. When God, the judge, poured his wrath onto Jesus Christ, propitiation, that word that Gary used, and he poured all his anger onto Jesus Christ, you, if you are in Christ, were punished which means no law can be held against you if it's already been punished. You now live free from the consequences of the law when it comes to the judge. You going there? There's a sinkhole that I'm rubbing sand into. Thank you very much, you're beautiful, off you go. Here's, here's why this is so important. We live as though there is no law to break because it's already been punished. That should make you scared. Here's why it should make you scared. Because it should mean that everyone can just be lawless. So you've got to ask the question, well, if we can't be under the punishment, then what makes us behave right? I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> Here's how it goes. So the promise is received by faith. It is given as a free gift, and we are all certain to receive it, whether or not we live according to the law of Moses, if we have faith like Abraham's. For Abraham is the father of all who believe. Faith is going to be the thing. Faith in God's promises are going to, is going to be the thing that pulls you right. Okay. So, if you have faith then what you have is the DNA of Abraham because Abraham is the father of all who believe. And if you have Abraham as a father, then his will, you know this from if a parent dies, you get the inheritance from the will. His will gets passed on to us. All the promises get downloaded to us if we're believers. And our life is about following the promises. Believing is so critical. So let me, I'll, I'll tell you a story. This weekend, I moved. So I asked Luto, Chris, Luto's brother, and Tabo to come help me. You will notice they are all black. Chris is a comedian. 
Now, everyone's going to feel uncomfortable because I'm going to crack race jokes, and you're going to be fine because Bones laughed his head off, so it's going to be all right. <laughs> Chris is so funny. So anyway, we, we're driving my Hilux, and Chris starts making jokes about the fact that there are four black guys, a white guy, and a Hilux. <laughs> and, and, and it's one joke after the next, after the next. And then an, an Indian guy drives past, and he starts ripping off the Indian guy in Indian accent, going, this is what's going through his mind. And he goes, hey, man. We must, we've got to call the police and all. And, and, and then he, he, he's just ripping off one person after the next. And, and then he, uh, Lutz starts ripping off the guys and, and he gets the Boichi accent from rugby and he says, oh, boys, come on, put your back into it. And, and, and I'm listening to these guys and they're just shredding each other. And I realized two things. If a black guy rips you off, you stay shredded. Those oaks are phenomenal. They can just, they can tear you apart. And the second thing I realized is that they were, not, they were not ripping people off based on their skin color. They were ripping them off based on their habits and their thoughts and their patterns and their systems and their fears. They were, they were ripping them off based on what they do. It was a big idea, big deal. You see... The scripture, writer of scripture, Paul here, is trying to get us to behave out of our identity, to do certain things based on what we believe. If you want to create habits, this is a big deal, and I'm going to pull these two thoughts together. If you want to create practices that grow into habits that become a lifestyle, they have to become an identity. So let me explain. If I want to be known as someone who's fit, or I want to be someone who's fit, identity, then what I'll do is I'll phone up a mate and say, do you want to run with me, or do you want to do gym with me, or do you want to do some sport with me, or get a buddy, and I'll start practicing going to gym. I'll go to gym this week, I'll go to gym next week, and whilst I'm going to gym, nothing's happening. I'm just getting sore, it sucks, it's, it's not fun. But if I keep going again and again, it will slowly become a habit. In fact, one day I'll wake up and, and my mate will phone me and say, I'm going to Joburg and I'll still go to gym. It's become a habit. Okay? And if I keep doing that and keep doing that and keep doing that, one day I'll wake up and I'll look at my body and I'll go, how on earth does she resist me? <laughs> Uh, only guys think like that. <laughs> and then I will keep going to gym. And, and one day, when I'm picking up a 500 kg table with, with one arm, or I'm in gym, people around will say, that looks just a gym freak. And I'll say about myself, I'm just, I'm just fit. I, health just matters to me. You know what's happened? It's become an identity. It shapes me now. Our Christianity, our believing, is supposed to be an identity that shapes our entire life so that we have these practices. So what do I do on Sunday? I go to church. Why? Because I'm a Christian. 
What do I do when I'm stressed about finances? I thank God. I sow, and I thank God that as I sow generously, I will reap generously. It's just what I do because I'm a Christian. I'm a believer. What do I do when, when it looks like the world's coming down on me? I worship and praise. Why? Because I'm a believer. That's what believers do. It just flows out of identity. And our whole job in the faith is to grow practices that represent our identity and do them again and again and again until they become habits, until they become a lifestyle. But, have you ever noticed in the first week of January how many people are at gym? <laughs> have you ever gone on the fifth week of the year and seen how many people are at gym? What happens? We give up. Christians consistently give up. They, they go, they practice, practice, and then I hear... Christianity is not working for me. I have this conversation again and again. I, I tried that. It's just not working. And we, it's, it's like in every other aspect of our lives, we expect a process to happen, but in Christianity, we think it's an event. Like I'll go to church in three weeks. It's got to be better. Imagine you did that, or you probably did that. That's why there are only people going to gym for the first week. Because you go, maybe people just go and they go, yes, no change. What's going on? Like there's, there's a process. So I want to read the process. Verse 17, it says this. That is what the scriptures mean when God told him, Abraham, I've made you the father of many nations. This happened because Abraham believed in the God who brings the dead back to life and who creates new things out of nothing. It's talking about Isaac. Even there was, when there was no reason for hope, Abraham kept, hold, kept hoping, believing that he would become the father of many nations. For God had said to him, that's how many descendants you'll have. And Abraham's faith did not weaken, even though at about 100 years of age, he figured his body was as good as his dead, and so was Sarah's womb. Abraham never wavered in believing God's promise. In fact, his faith grew stronger, and in this, he brought glory to God. Ab held on to a promise, he kept believing, and his faith grew stronger. Now, I read that, and I thought, why did his faith grow stronger? You see, it's one thing to have your faith really strong when you receive a promise. When you feel like God speaks to you, he says, I'll provide. Take that career step, I will, I will look after you. When you get the promise, oh man, it's easy. It's when You've felt like he's put something inside of you for marriage and it's 10 years later and you're still single. That's, that's when we fall out. It's when he put this, this call into your heart to be faithful with where you are and it's five years later and you still haven't been promoted. That's when stuff breaks. It's when, when you long for friendships and deep and a big community, and it's 25 years later, and you still feel like it's just a few of us. That's when people break out. But Abraham didn't. He went 20-something years, and his faith grew. How did he do it? So I got thinking about this, because if we're going to become believers who make a practice of our believing that becomes a habit, that becomes a lifestyle. There's an identity thing that he got that we need to get. And as I started to think about Abraham, I started to realize this guy, 
everything in his life was a process. God promised him wealth. And then what he did is he watched that bull come onto that cow, and after a bunch of months, the cow produced a calf. And then he watched year after year. That bull and that cow, another calf, another calf, another calf, another calf. And after a process of many, many years, Abraham woke up one, one day and went, I've got cattle for days. Abraham was a farmer. He was a nomadic farmer, but he would have been a farmer. And, and here's what Abraham would have done. He would have found seeds from a plant in one place, and he would have moved to another place, and he would have planted the plant, and then he would have moved to another place, and he would have sometimes cycled back, and he would have gone, oh, there's a plant. He would have understood there's a process. The only thing that you can do in the process, you can water it, and you can weed it. But there's nothing else you can do. But Abraham would have understood that there would be a day, he didn't know when, but there would come a day when that seed had just the right temperature and just the right moisture content, and it would germinate. And because everything around Abraham's life was in process, he would have understood that if God put the seed of the word of God into his heart, then God, who is faithful, would make it come about. It just, he just didn't know where in the process this was at, but every day that got a little bit closer, it had to happen tomorrow. Maybe it was the next day, and all Abraham was doing the whole time was weeding out unbelief and watering belief so that he would know that this thing would come, up, come about. And many of you have given up. Don't give up. See, what I've realized on this faith journey, I've realized God has given me an incredible gift. Because most people hit the wall on that's as much as I can take, and they move. They move marriages, they move cities, they move jobs, they move churches, they, they move. And God gave me a gift early on in faith. I, just, I realized, God put me here. You're stuck with me. And, and until, he, until he moves me, I'm, I'm here. And it gives me such joy. God put me in my marriage. I'm stuck there. <laughs> and at times, I felt stuck there. And then God began to do a good thing because I was in a process. And now I praise him every day for my marriage. You, you I... I I get such joy and relief about the fact that I believe completely that even if the day sucks, God planted me here, I'm in process, and he will bring about what he started in me. It is unbelievably freeing. It's some of the most powerful, self-empowering stuff you can believe is, I'm in process. I belong here. My longing for you is that when you hit the wall, you'll go, my identity is a believer. And so the God who brings the dead back to life and creates something out of nothing, even if I've been using a whacker on my heart and it's really, really hard, God is still capable of making something that was dead come to life. And he's capable of breathing something new 
that I've given up hope for into my heart and making it come about, but it's a process. Now, we're going to go into worship, not a normal end. The purpose of the end of this sermon is that God would literally resuscitate dreams in your heart, that he would place hope back into you, and that you would reorganize your life into the process of God and not the event of God, and that you would begin to pray this prayer, Lord, make me fruitful where you've placed me. I trust you for the process. And if you will do that, you will start to experience something that is so full of grace, you'll start to feel life again. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you to stand as Justy gets his guitar and makes that stuff happen. And I'm going to lead you in a prayer, and then we're going to worship. And I'm trusting God to do the rest. Will you stick your hands out like this? How many of you have got like dead stuff in your life that's just given up and needs to come back to life? You can just go like this. <laughs> this could be amusing. I can keep it going higher. <laughs> Jesus, I believe in you. That what you've started, you'll bring to completion because you don't put processes in that die. And even if somehow... Now I just want to say this. Most people give up because they believe either God doesn't care enough or that they've been so disobedient that God can't work with them. I want you to know God cares more than you can imagine. And he judges you not by your obedience, but by Jesus' obedience. Your job is to just keep putting one foot in front of the other. It's a process. So Jesus, I just ask that you release grace. I've got a few words for some people. There's some people here, you, you're high performers. And you wake up every morning, you've got a to-do list. And at the end of the day, if you ticked it all, you feel good about yourself. And if you failed at something, you beat yourself up. And some of you have been beating yourself up year upon year upon year upon year upon year. And you're starting to lose confidence. And I believe God would say, will you please give that burden to me? I judge you based on my son's performance, not your performance. And some of you, every time you get up, you get knocked down. I just feel like God's going, get up again. Don't give up. Don't give up. The seed's going to come apart. It's going to come about. Some of you in depression. The seed's growing. It's going to germinate. It will break you out. So Jesus, as we begin to sing this song, I just pray, God, that you will light a fire and you'll change stuff. Let's worship.